Good morning. I'd like to start this morning with the verse that this series is based on from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And behind that verse is the fact that God, in the beginning, called into existence the original creation. By his bare word, he flung into space all of the things that we see around us, the entire creation, including we ourselves. And when it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, it means that by his same creative word, God calls into existence new people. And this is the wonder of a person becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian is not simply turning over a new leaf or deciding to develop some new relationships or new habits to take place of the old ones. It's not even as profound as deciding to change our religion. Uh, Becoming a Christian is passing from death to life, becoming a new person in Christ. And we read about this, and when we gather together in church, we sing about it, we think about it, and we find out from the Bible that we have a cleansed heart, a new heart. And and this new heart gives to us new capabilities and new opportunities in life and new relationships and new impulses. And in the beginning of the Christian life, there's a a great deal of excitement that things can be different. We're we're told we have hope. That's something else we have new. uh, Hope that all of the things that have dogged our heels as we've moved through life, whatever those struggles are in attitudes or in behavior or painful relationships that we've had, those can all be different in the future. But often that's not what we find in the Christian life. Our experience of the gospel often seems to fall short of what it is we expect. And it's not simply that our expectations are wrong because there are things that are said in the Bible that lead us to to expect certain things. Peter says in 1 Peter that it is the birthright of every Christian to have joy inexpressible and full of glory. And yet, that is not most people's experience from day to day. And this morning, what I want to do is think about a major reason why that is. Why is it that people in the church often feel that they're not experiencing a supernatural kind of maturity that they hope for, they long for? And I would say that there must be something about the gospel that isn't being released. There must be some understanding of the gospel and its significance that we don't fully understand and experience despite all our singing and our praying and our fellowshipping together and studying the Bible and so forth. And I'm going to use one word to describe it this morning, and that word is repentance. 500 years ago this year, there was a monk like a Catholic monk in the city of Wittenberg in Germany. And in November of 1517, he nailed a piece of paper to the door of the church asking for a debate. And it was called the 95 Theses. It had 95 points that built on each other that he was challenging the church of his day, that was the Roman Catholic Church, the only church at that time. He was challenging them to think through these things and respond to these things. Can anybody tell me what the first point was? What's the first of the 95 Theses? And you learned this in grade school, didn't you? I had to memorize this. The first thesis was, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended for the whole life of the believer to be 
repentance. In other words, all of life is meant to be repentance. Now, I'm pretty sure that's not how we think today. I'm pretty sure that nobody came into this room this morning thinking, boy, I can't wait to repent. (laughs) Because what we think of repentance, we think it's something for the bad times. Like once a year, more or less, we do something really bad that we know. We, We say something to another person. We make some error in judgment. We tell a lie. I mean, whatever it is that our conscience rags on us about it, and we know because we feel bad that we have to do something, so we go to someone and we say we're sorry, or we go to God and we confess our sins, and we resolve not to do that anymore. In other words, repentance is something for the bad times, and we all know what it's like, but it's not for the good times, and it's not the kind of experience that once you've done that, you feel like, well, I can't wait to do that again. That felt really good. We don't want to repeat it very often. But, but when you really understand the gospel, that's not your mentality. There's a story in the gospels that, that tells us that. It's a story of where Jesus had dinner with a Pharisee, a very uh, important religious figure of his day, apparently a wealthy man. He was invited to dinner with this Pharisee named Simon. And Jesus goes to his house. And when he enters the house, we're to picture a woman who comes in after him. And this woman is um, a sinful woman, like she's known in the community for living an immoral life. And it says that what she did is she knelt down at Jesus' feet and she began to weep on his feet and then dry uh, his feet with her hair. And she took ointment and began to uh, anoint his feet. And uh, the Pharisee is really incensed by this. And we would think that he's thinking, well, what's this woman doing here? I didn't let her in. You know, why is she in the house? But we're told what he's thinking. And what he's thinking tells us about his mentality towards Jesus and why he invited him to dinner. The man is thinking, if this man, Jesus, if he were really a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this is who was touching him. And he'd tell her to get away. And Jesus knew what Simon was thinking in his heart. And Jesus said to him, Simon, um, let me tell you a story. Now, just a little warning. You know you're in trouble when Jesus says to you, let me tell you a story. So he, he tells him this very simple story. And the story goes like this. There's a very wealthy man. He has two debtors, people who owe him money. One of, of the men who owes him money owes him a relatively small sum. I mean, it's a, a sum of money, but it's not a huge amount. The other one owes him an amount that is like you, you couldn't even imagine paying it off in a lifetime. And when the wealthy man realizes these two debtors cannot pay him off, he promptly, we're told, forgives, cancels the debts of both of them. And then based on that simple story, Jesus asked Simon, Simon, which one of these two do you suppose loves him more? And Simon answers, naturally, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus makes a very simple application. This woman um, is doing for me what you as a host should have done. You should have provided a servant to wash my feet that have been begrimed by the streets as I've walked here in sandals and anointed my feet uh, with oil. But instead, you didn't do any of that. And she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and anointed them with oil. And then Jesus said, um, she loves much because she has been forgiven much and, and the kicker is kind of the, the point of the story where the knife twists, like in all parables that Jesus tells, is the last words he says, He who has forget, been forgiven little 
loves little. Here's what Jesus means. If you understand the gospel, that Jesus Christ has covered all of your sins, then that releases a joy and a love that flows out towards other people. And if, on the other hand, you do not rest your life on the gospel, then it doesn't matter what kind of person you are. You can be an atheist, you can be a criminal, or you can be a morally upright person. If you don't rest your life on the gospel, then any time you discover your sin, it just leads you to despair. That's the difference. When a person understands the gospel and rests their life on it, the more they do that, the more they find that seeing their sin is something that allows them to turn away from it more and more, and they see it as a delight. It allows the joy and the peace of the gospel to flow out of them, but if they don't rest their life on it, then Anything you do, anything that happens that shows your inadequacy or shows your sin is just a source of despair. Now, what is repentance? What does it look like? What kind of things do we need to repent of? How do we do that? Well, this passage that was read for us a minute ago is really about that. In Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, it starts with these words, put to death Therefore, and that is the essence of repentance, put to death. And he goes on, he lists a series of behavior. Now, I want you to note that there are behaviors listed in verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. These are things that are, we might call moral sins that are relatively evident when, when they're present to other people. And then he goes on later in the passage and he lists another set of sins. Verse 8, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And this includes what we would think of not so much as moral sins, but relational sins. And some of these aren't quite as evident automatically as behaviors. But essentially, repentance, given those two lists, is um, identifying and turning away from certain behaviors that God says are sinful. On the surface, that's the basic meaning of the passage. In the end, he takes one specific kind of relational sin, lying, and he says, do not lie to one another because of what God has done in your life. He focuses on that. So at its most basic level, repentance requires that we identify a specific sin. We acknowledge that that is something that God does not want us to do, we feel a sense of sorrow that that's a part of our life, and then we make a determination to turn away from it. That's the essence of repentance. Now, if we only think on that level, we might be tempted to think that sin is just all that it is, is wrong behaviors and wrong attitudes. And so we would think of what we're supposed to do as kind of a sort of like looking at a fruit tree. You see an apple tree, and the apples are maturing on it. And there's a point in the summer as they're starting to, to mature where you can look at the apple tree and carefully examine it, and you can identify those apples that are really substandard. And, and so you get out your ladder or you crawl up in the tree, and you go out and you can take off the individual pieces of fruit that are bad fruit. And that's the idea that many people have about repentance, that what we're doing is we're identifying specific behaviors, feeling sorry for it, and seeking to turn away, to forsake it, to live a different kind of life. But there's one phrase in here that tells us that even though that is true on one level, 
We ought to think a little more deeply about that. It's in verse 5 where he's describing these moral sins and he includes covetousness and he says, which is idolatry. Now that might kind of surprise us. Why would he say covetousness is idolatry? Well, this picks up on a theme that's pretty common in the Old Testament. The Old Testament underlined that all sin ultimately is a form of idolatry. It's placing something in the place of God. In Paul's own experience, as we read about it in the New Testament as a Jewish rabbi, a covetousness, the tenth of the Ten Commandments, desiring things that weren't his, was the one sin that he couldn't seem to get his arms around and control. He could not be sexually immoral. He could uh, keep away from lying and stealing and things like that. But when it came to something that dealt purely with his internal desire, that wasn't so easy to control. And, and that one sin told him there was something controlling his heart other than God. And that's the essence of idolatry. Now, to understand this, let me quote from that famous, famous movie. Should have won an Oscar. Rocky. (laughs) You know, the movie back from the 1980s. It's kind of had a resurgence recently because they've continued to make these uh, Rocky movies. And um, you might remember in the movie, there's a, a famous phrase that Rocky says, I want to go the distance. Do you remember that? I want to go the distance. And in the key sentence in the entire film, he says, if I can just go the distance, I'll know that I'm not a bum. Now, I want to suggest that you and I have something in our lives, just like Rocky, that we feel will prove that we're not a bum. It, it, there's something, and it usually is centered around, I want to get that, I want to be that, I want to do that, I want to achieve that. There's something that I believe and you believe you can get to that will prove that you're really an okay person, that you've made it through life, and there's something in your heart that identifies that, whatever it is, with your identity as being a real, valuable, loved, respected person. It may be relationships. You want to have a family that exemplifies what family should be. You want your children to grow up to be the kind of people who will live out the Christian faith and at the same time be upstanding, hardworking, loving people because if you have a recognizably good family, there's something inside of you that says, I will have done it then. Or or you might be a certain position in your field of work, like you want to accomplish being recognized, uh, being placed in a position of authority or respectability or whatever it is. It may be financial security, where you feel that if I can just get to this point, I'll finally be able to relax and say, now I've got it, now I've done it. But whatever it is, the gospel tells you that it's wrong. Now, it doesn't tell you that whatever it is you desire is wrong, not in itself, But it's wrong to have a heart that tells you, if I can do that, be that, whatever it is, it will prove that I'm acceptable. I'll prove that I'm not a bum if I can get there. Because to the degree that you do that and you seek life in that way, to that degree, you're not finding it in Christ. And yet this passage right before where Jody picked up and began reading in verse 4, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. In other words, we're meant to find life 
identity, significance, a sense of satisfaction in life in Christ. Why do you need more life? Why do you create idols out of something else? And that's what we see when we look below the surface. We find that sin is not just specific behaviors like attitudes or actions that that are wrong. Sin is a form of heart idolatry. You might think of this as like a psychological level. Psychologically, we all develop idols of the heart. We believe that there are things that if we can achieve that, it will tell us that we've gone the distance. We're not bums. We've proven to ourselves to our mother or father, to God, whoever it is, that we're really worthwhile. So on a surface level, we need to repent of sin, relationally or morally or ethically. But on a psychological level, it's not just specific sins. It's heart idolatry. It's a heart that becomes attracted to other things. And we can take anything in life and turn it into an idol. We can even in the church take things like having meaningful spiritual relationships or um, involvement in Christian activities, or mastering the content of the Bible, we can turn that into a way that we will prove that we're really a worthwhile person. But let's take it one step deeper. You know, if that's kind of like psychologically what happens, how does the Bible tell us about this theologically? Like, how does it describe what it means for us to turn away from those things that we believe will prove that were really acceptable. In clear biblical terms, you don't need to turn this, but in the preceding book, the book of Philippians, Paul is describing his own experience. And let me read a few verses, Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value, worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now let me focus on a couple of things that you said there. If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. And when he says flesh there, he doesn't mean in the physical body. He uses flesh to refer to my, my uh, fallenness, my uh, remaining sin and its power inside of me. If anyone thinks he has confidence in just outward things that are somehow measured inwardly, I am doing better than that because I have an ethnic heritage, a religious heritage, a zeal for God that was so demonstrable that I knew I was doing the right thing. But then he says, you know, whatever I found to be gain, I had to count as loss. In fact, he goes, he says, I count them as rubbish. And some of you might know he uses a word there that um, means excrement. It's kind of a slang term. I'll let you Put your own in there. But, I mean, he's saying, all these things that I thought were important, they're worse than worthless. 
Because I want to be found in Christ. Now, when he describes all these benefits he had before he came to Christ, his pride and his heritage and his educational attainments and all of that, he says, I counted them as loss. And that's really what happened in a definitive way for the Apostle Paul when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, as it's revealed in Acts chapter 9. He was riding along thinking he was doing okay, and we're told that Christ himself out of heaven spoke to him, smote him with blindness temporarily, and he was suddenly brought to this realization that the whole direction of his life was wrong, and he began to move in a different direction, and everything that he had counted as important, he realized was worthless. But the way he describes in this passage, he's not describing simply something that was like a revelation and it was done and it was all over and everything was different after that. It's what he has to keep on doing. So he he says that even now he counts all things as loss. So what repentance looks like theologically for the Apostle Paul was that he sees himself as a person who was constructing his own righteousness. He was trying to make himself acceptable to God. And you say, well, isn't that the essence of what has to change at conversion? And it is. I mean, ultimately, we have to recognize we can't be acceptable to God based on our own selves and what we produce. Faith in Christ involves repentance, that is, turning from trusting in other things, turning from sin and turning to God. That's what faith is, trusting in Christ. So, I mean, it is the essence of what it means to become a Christian, to recognize that Christ is the only one who can make us righteous before God. But the problem is this, because of the flesh... Because of remaining sin inside of us, this is built into the human heart, this desire to be something before God, to prove to God that I'm, I'm really okay. And Paul said, I, I have to continually deconstruct my own righteousness, this, this thing that I build up, and in its place, I have to allow Christ to be the source of my acceptability and not what I do and not other people. So what does repentance look like theologically? Well, it's this idea we're all seeking to construct our own righteousness in a certain way. And that doesn't stop automatically at conversion. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, put to death. We have to continue to engage in this. And these sins that we need to deal with, or this heart idolatry, or this righteousness that we're trying to make for ourselves is nothing less than our fallen intention to make ourselves acceptable to God. And at its most basic level, repentance is required when we initially come to faith in Christ. But it is not that it ends at that point. It is the beginning of a process of repentance and faith in which we turn from those things which we think make us valuable and we turn to Christ and his righteousness. They don't end at that point. They're just the beginning. And that's why Martin Luther said, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he said repent, intended that the whole of life for the believer would be repentance. None of us, when we come to faith in Christ, fully accept the gravity of our sin. We can't see it. That's the grace of God, that he doesn't reveal that to us all at once. It would be be crushing. But as we go through life, we begin to see the specific ways in which our sin is something that we need to deal with. In this passage, in Colossians, Paul uses the, the terminology of the old self and the new self. So he says, as you go later on in the passage, do not lie to one another, verse 9. Seeing that you have put off 
the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, he describes this as something that has already happened. And it is, by the way, the language of baptism. Um, I, it may surprise you. You say, what do you mean put on and put off? But it probably came from the idea that when a person was baptized, they took off an old set of clothes that represented their old life. And after baptism, they put on a new, clean set of clothes. And that idea of putting on became connected with a person being baptized. So it says in uh, Galatians chapter 3, for as many of us or any of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that's what he's referring to here. Now, baptism is, is simply the outward symbolic action of what a person receives by faith. By faith, I put off an old way of life, and I trust in Christ, and I made a new creation. And then baptism is like a symbolic acting out of that in which I symbolically represent to people I'm putting off an old way of life and putting on a new way of life. So baptism is the identification with Christ and all the benefits of his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that's done effectively first by faith in Christ. It's done symbolically then through public baptism. But what I want you to note, he says, do not lie to one another because you've already put off and put on. This is our done. But then it goes on and says, the new self, which is being renewed, present tense, in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so, that which definitively happened at the point where a person trusted in Christ, that which was acted out in the act of baptism, is, uh, initiates a process in which a person is engaged in being renewed. And that's what the putting to death, that's what the repentance is all about. That which definitively happened in conversion is now worked out in life. It's past, and yet it still has to be experienced because of the flesh as we walk with Christ and we learn to obey him. In that context, repentance means to seek to see the ways in which our hearts are captured by other things, the ways in which we are seeking to make ourselves acceptable to God in our own minds, acknowledging that that is wrong, turning from it with a resolve to think and live differently. Now, what does that look like? I can tell you what it looked like in my life this week. Um, we have a ministry here called Church Expansion Albania. Not everyone knows about it. The members do. It's a, uh, it's a ministry that is like a mission board that we conduct under the auspices of our church, and we are helping to plant churches in the Balkans. Well, a number of questions have arisen about the um, tax-exempt status that I've known I'd need to answer, and we have a man in the church who is familiar with tax-exempt or, or with um, nonprofit organizations, and he has an attorney that has worked with him on a number of things that he's done. So he got me an appointment with his attorney, and, and uh, we went to meet with this person. Now, we are in this, this man's absolutely gorgeous office, downtown Birmingham, uh, and, and as we're talking, I was feeling a little unsure of myself, you know, and wanting to explain to this man what, what this was all about and was describing the church and so forth, and the man said to me, um, how big is your church? And I thought, I'm so glad you asked that, <laughs> you know, because if I had to say, I've been working here for 30 years and I've got 50 people that show up, that would mean I haven't gone the distance. I mean, I would be a bum. But I can say 400, 450 people, 
And that means I have gone the distance. Now, the truth is, if I could say a 1,000, I would really have gone the distance. I mean, I'd be you know, even super uh, acceptable. But inside of me, what I'm saying is there's something that says, if I can go the distance, I won't be a bum, and it will prove to somebody, I'm not sure who that person is, at least to me, that I'm really worth it. Because in my mind, I think big church means big pastor. Little church means little pastor. Now, I answered his question when we went on. It wasn't really a subject of discussion. It wasn't something between him and me. It was something going on in my heart. And, and afterwards, I thought of what repentance really means. It means that I have to acknowledge that that's just a lie. That there's nothing that makes me better person, more acceptable, God loves me more, or anything because a certain number of people come to the church. Even though I believe it, it's just an idol of my heart, and I have to see it for what it is and acknowledge it to be wrong and forsake it again. That's what repentance meant to me this week. And that's what it means for all of us in whatever ways we construct our own righteousness. We are attracted to idols of the heart. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who has given to us the gospel. And the gospel is so simple that Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead to give us new life. And yet the, the nature of that is what it means for us to actually enter into that and to experience it. To experience more and more deeply that all of my sins are covered and that I am made fully acceptable and righteous in your sight through Jesus Christ alone. That that is, uh, is something that the most healthy of churches and the most strenuous reading and study of the Bible and the most serious prayer, it could never bring me to the end of that in this life. And yet you give us those things so that we will make progress and then help us to do that and help us, I pray, to be the kind of church in which we are not encouraged to have heart idols, but we are encouraged to turn from them and to live a life that is characterized by repentance. We pray that in Jesus' name.